Live from the rooftop of the Herman London Real Estate Group in beautiful downtown Maplewood, it's the St. Louis Realtor Podcast with your host, Adam Cruz. All right, welcome, welcome everybody to the Herman London Real Estate Group St. Louis Realtor Podcast live from the rooftop of the Herman London Real Estate Group in beautiful downtown Maplewood, Missouri. I'm Adam Cruz and we've got our producer here, Joey Vosovich, and we're excited because we have a very special guest in the studio, Alicia Sierra, Realtor Extraordinaire, Realtor to the Stars, Realtor with clients worldwide, right? We're going to jump right into our interview and our talk and everything with Alicia. We've got some interesting topics planned. I just want to give a couple quick updates. We've got our Herman London Company picnic coming up soon. Uh, That's something we do every year and everyone's always very excited. We have a great time with that. I did the Realtor City Tour today. We toured a bunch of different properties in the Tower Grove East area and the Compton Heights area. We went through about 10 houses. So many interesting properties there. I was actually surprised by some of the price points. I was surprised that there was houses in the, you know, $400,000 in that area. That was great. Also, we are very excited here. I actually just cracked open a beer because we just finished our audit. The Herman London property management team was audited by the Missouri Real Estate Commission. And so we just finished that. We're very excited. And so we're going to have a beer to that. But I'm going to jump right in. I've got Alicia here and she's a very, very, very busy woman. So I don't want to take too much of your time, Alicia. How are you today? On my way out, actually. No, I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm, I'm excited to have you here because I think that we've, we've interviewed other investor type of people before. We've never interviewed a realtor who works, I guess, so closely with so many different investors and actually closes so many deals. There's a lot of realtors that say they do investment deals, but I know personally because I see all the closings that you have. You're closing a lot of deals. How do you even keep that all straight? Assistance. You have a lot of assistance? I have assistance with the paperwork. Okay, that's yes. good. And that's that's something I'm always trying to encourage realtors to get as assistance, and they don't seem to listen to me. So that's something you believe in? Yes. I think that delegation uh-huh. in all areas of your life is good. <laughs> that works for you? I think it works. I think it makes a lot of sense. Okay. I, it makes a lot more sense for me to find the next investor than to be dotting the last I. Well, you're you're an interesting realtor because you, I mean, you've been doing this a while. Obviously, you're very successful. Were you born into a real estate family or how did you kind of fall into this career? No, I was not born into a real estate family. I was born into a family that left some really great real estate, i.e. the island of Havana. Okay. For some better real estate in the United States. Okay. But um, no, I... Um, I'm going to completely give away my age because I'm looking really good on this podcast uh-huh. right now, <laughs> but uh, catfishing the heck out of you guys right now. <laughs> but uh, no, it all uh, started with uh, insomnia and some cheesy late night Carlton Sheets infomercials. Oh, really? Circa 19... 19- Okay. <laughs> kind of a while back. Uh, things broke up there. For yeah, sure. exactly. <laughs> the interest in real estate. But as far as selling investment property in uh, St. Louis City and St. Louis County, I'm about nine years into that gig, into okay. that aspect of the business. Okay. And so you act as a realtor. You do some of your own investing. I do. And you do some of your own like rehabbing and flipping. I do. Wow. Okay. Yes. Good. You, you do stay busy then. I do. 
Well, so you're a good person to mm-hmm. ask. I mean, I, I don't know. We, there's a thousand things I want to ask you today and talk about with you today. I know you're busy and we got to stick with our timelines and stuff like that. But tell us from what you see. I think I think you do kind of follow spreadsheets, right? You're sort of a spreadsheet person. So tell me some of the changes that you're seeing in the market and residential market or just in the investment market in general. My impression of the market I think it's is more from my experience and just watching the inventory every day yeah. as opposed to watching a line on a graph. But when I started, it was the beginning of the crash and it was sort of a feeding frenzy onto just countless foreclosures. It was hard to keep up with tracking all the properties every single day and that has dropped off dramatically. The number of foreclosures has dropped off. The number off. of foreclosures. I mean, that's what we're hearing, but that, that's what I'm experiencing is the number of foreclosures has dropped off dramatically. However, at the same time, well, only cash buyers could really play that game because the financing opportunities went away. And so it seems to be inversely related. So now we have less inventory, but we have more opportunities for uh, credit financing. So... The cash buyers, obviously, they still have their cash, but there's more buyers at the same time vying for less inventory. Does that make it harder for you? Because your clients are mainly cash buyers, right? Uh, my clients are mainly cash buyers. I mean, uh, cash buyers still have an advantage in that they can offer more quick closing, a more sure thing for a seller. However, they're still competing more. Real estate, one thing that's always interesting is it will never stay the same. So uh, I fully expected the market to change. And I think that inventory will appear. It's just going to come from something different than high number of foreclosures. I'm not seeing like a lowering, I guess I would say, in the amount of deals that you guys are doing or that your clients are buying that type of thing are you just buying less foreclosures and more properties that are owned by non-banks the volume is actually lower for me than it was at the peak four or five four to six years ago in that time frame however you just have to diversify the type of deals that you're going to do i wasn't doing for example so many uh listings of renovated properties i'm doing more of those for example okay But um, I think the inventory is going to come more from uh, baby boomers downsizing, moving, or unfortunately, uh, estates. Older people that have been in homes for a long time. Uh, Obviously, it's it's not a big secret that baby boomer generation is, is getting older. So they're either passing away or moving. And that's going to be a lot big source. But also, ironically, I, I find that a lot of people, uh, there were a lot of uh, dealers selling, buying those low priced homes and then fixing and selling them or selling them in their current condition during the peak of the inventory. Uh-huh. And a lot of uneducated out of state individual buyers picked up inventory, which and which hasn't necessarily been as great as an experience for them as they had hoped. Okay, so they may, so, might have been trying to like competing against you and your clients before, but now you're having the opportunity to buy those properties back from them at a higher price or about the no, same price? No, I mean, I, I'm, I'm unfortunately, I mean, I didn't necessarily sell these properties, but I do see a lot of uh, more private sales of properties at a loss. You know, just for example, I looked at one the other day where I don't know, uh, it sold for about three years ago for about 50000 and it needs a lot of work now. So it was poorly managed. Uh huh probably uh, damaged by a tenant and now you know they're either facing the choice of pouring a lot more money into the property or cutting their losses and selling it as it is now so I do I do see a lot of that of that 
because of the challenge of owning a property where you don't live. And they don't want to pour money into it. They have a bad taste in their mouth for that particular property for some reason. So now you guys can buy it and pour money into it. Correct. There's less inventory, and the, but the, also the sources of inventory are shifting. That's good because I've, you know, as the market crashed, you kind of got into it. It sounds like maybe around the same time I did when things were sort of going downhill. But mm-hmm. you hear a lot of realtors who were just kind of got out of the business because they said, oh, the, the market's bad. Oh, there's no deals to be mm-hmm. done or whatever. And they kind of got out of the business. No, but, the retail business did hurt a lot at that time. But some right. people, they had to change their business model, right? They had to mm-hmm. kind of try to do different, different things. And it sounds like you've done that. You've been flexible. Yes, been, you have to adapt uh, to the market. It's And it will, for sure, never stay the same. Are your people buying properties mainly that cash flow or that are they're hoping to be long-term holds that are going to appreciate or a little mix of both? Or what do you... What's kind of the formula that you're seeing be successful today? Um, generally speaking, I, I see buyers in different camps. And the most successful investors choose a certain course or plan of action. And that's the one they focus on and set up their business model for. Okay. So there is the camp of buying purely for cash flow. So they'll use a measurement tool. Mm-hmm. like either a simple formula that the gross rent has to be three times the total investment in the property. That's extreme, you know, or, or cap rate. Well, can I go back to that? The gross mm-hmm. rent for the year? The gross rent would be, no, for the, like if the house costs 30000 they're uh-huh. trying to hit somewhere between two and a half and three times that. So a rent rate of like 800 to 900 a month. So that is an extreme oh. example. So, so that might be. 30000 cut the last three zeros right. off it. That might be like a two family in uh, either somewhere in South City or North City. That would be uh-huh. probably a city property. And that's just a quick, simple measurement to quickly evaluate the potential of a deal. Others are more precise from the get go. Uh, they put in all the real numbers, as you know, a, a measurement, a particular measurement for projected maintenance costs. Right. Real numbers for taxes and insurance and calculate the cap rate. Okay. And you know, so they have a certain cap rate they like to buy at. There's a certain cap rate that they like to buy at, and um, you know, for listeners who don't know what that is, talk to me about <laughs> cap rate. What is it? That is your total investment in a property. Total investment divided by your annual net income. Divided so, by net income. So you take the total income for the year, and you subtract out a percentage for vacancy. Okay. Different camps. Some people are more or less conservative there. They might say it's going to be vacant on average one month a year. Mm-hmm. Other people might say two months a year. You subtract a percentage for maintenance costs. Some okay. people consider, well, especially in uh, high cash flow properties, you probably anticipate a little higher maintenance costs. Maybe as high as 25%. I see people use as low as 10%. Okay. And then real costs for property taxes and insurance and utilities. But not nothing to do with your mortgage payment or anything like that. Cap rate ignores that. Well... That's a cash on cash calculation. Okay. If that's what they're using, that's what a cash buyer would use. Uh-huh. Yeah, that would be your because return based on a cash purchase. And it's not fair to include the mortgage and all that in no, there because that, it's different for everyone. Well, because if if it's only if you're only if you're mortgaging part of it and you're only using your cash investments, it's even going to come out higher for whatever you are investing of your cash. I mean, you're going to take out your payment if that were the case. Right. So, I mean, without at the risk of getting too technical, the point is that an investor, a prepared investor will have already chosen a calculation right. that he or she is comfortable with using. 
and applies to evaluate a property that they're considering purchasing. So generally speaking, the higher the cash flow, the lower to non-existent the potential appreciation of the property because they're typically in more economically depressed areas in general, just generally speaking in any city or metro area. Okay, so for the realtors that are listening, it's important for them to understand the different methods that an investor might use, right? Yeah, so you can speak their language. Speak their language. If you if a new investor mm-hmm. calls and they say, hey, I want to invest in some real estate, the realtor should be able to ask them specific questions about what their formula is. Exactly. And also know what pieces of information that they can provide to help them with that calculation. To fill that out. Okay. So, yeah, to help them evaluate right. a property for them. Right, because each client's different. Some like to do their own research. Some of them, you know, they'll want you to provide the, for example, the last year's property tax rate. And then maybe they'll use that to probably still do some of their own evaluation. Correct. Have you seen investors that are trying to go off all these different methods and they're not successful? Or do you just see the ones that are most successful say, here's our formula. I don't want to see or talk about anything Mm -hmm. outside of this formula. And I'm just going to buy, buy, buy as long as it meets this formula. Uh, Generally speaking, the most successful investors have a game plan Mm -hmm. and specific parameters. They can tell me what, you know, they can explain those parameters to me. And they want to see something that's at least reasonably, could be reasonably fit into those parameters. Okay. So it's my job to bring them properties, whether they be on the MLS or off the MLS, that are potential opportunities within those parameters. I used to go to a lot of like networking events and meet with a lot of different real estate investors. And, you know, I could be sitting at a table with 15 different real estate investors. And I was always kind of interested or amazed that one of them, they all had their own formula. They all had their own mm-hmm. model, right? One of them bought only near colleges. One of them bought only multifamily. One of them bought only single families in in lower income areas or whatever. And they all have their own formula. I guess none of them are necessarily wrong or right. You know, it's just like what works for them. Yeah, No, I I would measure success by whether or not their own game plan is working out. Okay. That would be the measurement of success because that's one of the beautiful things about real estate. There are so many strategies that help you grow wealth in real estate. There is countless, countless strategies. It's like multi-dimensional game of monopoly. And now you mentioned that you're also an investor. Yes. And that probably makes it a little bit harder for you having such a strong understanding of all these different formulas and having such a good like finger on the pulse of the market in all these different areas. What type of investor are you? Well, I mean, currently, I'm a kind of investor who likes to take advantage of the opportunities that present themselves <laughs> okay. currently. So right now, I see opportunities in um, flipping a turnkey rental property. And we define turnkey by meaning that they are sold in complete and utter rent-ready condition. And some people would say that turnkey also includes tenant placement as well. Okay. T- placement of its of a qualified tenant just depends on your definition. Um, they're low, lower risk, lower profit spread, um, renovation projects. They're also a little easier to identify projects than, um, retail flips right now because the retail flips, um, in the areas that are the strongest selling markets, as you can imagine, there's a lot of investors vying for those projects and they're also competing against owner occupants because as a result of the real estate crash, we, have grown-ups now that grew up through that and are accustomed to terms like Fannie Mae foreclosure and HUD foreclosure 
and the, those concepts in a way that my generation wasn't. So, you know, you're competing with owner occupants who are willing to take advantage of foreclosure opportunities and sometimes banks and sellers who are willing to cater to them in ways they weren't previously. So you said some of these deals are lower risk, lower profit. Does that mean mm-hmm. like you, for example, buy a property, you take on a lot of the risk of the rehab and the the question marks and the what ifs and are there termites and are there right. these problems? You deal with a lot of those risks by doing the rehab and getting right. the inspections and doing all that type of thing. But then you're going to obviously get profit for what you're doing. So the person who's buying it from you, they can be more confident that the building is in good condition. Correct. are not going to have... Big- and they're, I mean, the homes that are rentals aren't generally as viable product for retail owner-occupant buyers. They're smaller homes okay. with smaller rooms, uh-huh. usually one bathroom, etc. You're not covering as much ground, and they're n- newer construction for St. Louis anyway. By St. Louis standards, something that's mid-century is a lot less risk to take on than our 100-year-old brick stock buildings. Are they lower priced, too? I they're mean, lower priced. Lower so if a square. buyer's going out looking at properties, they're like, I'll just use some fake numbers, for example, but they're like looking at homes between 80 and 140, let's say. Mm-hmm. So they see the house that you have listed, let's call it 80, and they go, this is nice. It's been rehabbed. It's done well. But I just don't know. I'm just not sure. Well, these homes aren't on the open market. Generally, with the turnkey rental, you have a buyer who's waiting for that product. Oh, so you already have a buyer. In, in you have hand. a buyer in mind, which is why it's reduced risk and reduced uh, profit spread. But I'm glad you brought up those lower priced, the first time home buyer. Those are all, those are lower um, profit margins as well for investors. They're a little bit easier to find. Um, just, you know, for example, some of the bread and butter St. Louis neighborhoods like Christie Park. Right. Um, in and around there. 80 to $120,000 resale home. It's a project that doesn't take as long, a little more straightforward. You don't need as high end finishes. So it's a lower risk because it's still low enough that if for some reason the market shifted and the house didn't sell. You don't have so much invested in it. You don't have as much invested. It's not as financially devastating. You could rent the home until the market shifted back. And it's so easier those, to find, you're saying? Yeah. So if I do enter into retail, um, I tend to prefer those lower end projects. But there, I know plenty of people who do remarkably well in higher end projects, including historic tax credits and all of that with the beautiful housing stock that we have in St. Louis. It's just a different strategy. And then there's plenty of investors, as you know, who just like to work really hard to find great deals and sell them at a markup in their current fixer upper condition. And we call those wholesalers. Yes. And I love wholesaling. Yes. Which is, you know, as a real estate agent, not necessarily a wholesaler, but it kind of works the same way. If I'm trying to find an off market deal or even an as is deal on the MLS, I'm getting paid to identify and handle the transaction. But I am taking a property in its current condition from one owner to the next owner who's going to take on the rehab because the current seller doesn't have the time inclination or funds and or the funds to renovate the property and sell it at a retail full price. The kinds of properties that I find the most difficult sales on the market, which you agree, Adam, are the ones that aren't technically distressed condition. They're well-kept, they're clean, they're livable, but they're not modernized right. and renovated. If you've ever watched House Hunters on HGTV, somebody would be complaining that there wasn't granite countertop and stainless right. steel appliances. And I find those little, I call them, the, they're like the little land of misfit listings. Right. 
because it's like your mom or dad's house and it's nice and clean and well kept and it's got this awesome systems and everything but they don't understand what's wrong with the chintz and prints wallpaper <laughs> i went through a few today yeah. and i'm walking through these houses and this the listing agent's like we just don't understand why it's not selling mm-hmm. and it's just there's just something about it right it's just something about it just didn't feel right and maybe that's because i am a millennial but i'm like <laughs> i don't know i just can't get my head around it you know and i'm like i guess just lower the price so I think that's sort of what you're talking about. But there's about. a, I call that the, the the purgatory houses. That's the other thing I call them. They're just a little bit of limbo. They're not quite spiffed up enough to command a price in the retail range. And generally speaking, millennials, for the most part on the open market, they just want to move in, fill the fridge up with their PBRs and yeah. call it a day. Yeah. They really don't want to take on much more than a Pinterest project as far as their home projects go. God bless them. I can't say I blame them. You know, they want to be free to do other things. So either that or they're looking for the equity and it's got to be a little more extreme than tiny little piece of equity for the trouble. So if you have a home listed right now and your mm-hmm. realtor is saying, hey, we need to do a price drop, $5,000, $10,000, should you be saying to yourself, wait, but I don't have granite, I don't have stainless, mm-hmm. I don't have hardwoods maybe. Instead of doing a $10,000 price drop, should I do these things? Should I get granite? Should I get some stainless? Should I redo my hardwoods? And my house is going to sell tomorrow? This is where listing your house with, or at least involving an investor agent like myself in the evaluation and listing of your house Mm -hmm. is a real asset to even a homeowner not just an investor because I've also seen investors make the wrong calls with on, certain like the updates to do you on mean? the updates to do. Yes, because they apply, especially um, part-time investors uh-huh. that they're not necessarily making their full-time living. They're just trying to do a couple extra projects a year right. because they apply their own, especially when they're older, uh-huh. they apply their own aesthetic sensibility or priorities to the project instead of really finding out what the priorities of their end buyers are, right. which can be, very different. I mean, I know I put more importance in very different things than 25-year-olds and 30-year-olds do now. It's not a, it's not good or bad. It's just you have to consider if I'm selling a house in a neighborhood like Tower Grove East, by and large, I'm going to have, you know, a younger buyer or hipper buyer, so to speak, not necessarily a millennial age, but a millennial sentiment. You know, you really need to do a very more than a cursory evaluation. You really got to do a sort of an in-depth evaluation. And as you also know, there's a difference between one neighborhood to the next in the city in very close proximity. So your Compton Heights buyer has a little different sort of thing going on in different price range than your Tower Grove East buyer and so on. So you really have to know those neighborhoods. And I, you know, I really recommend more of a neighborhood specialist when it comes to evaluating the value and where you can get it more bang for your buck. You know, it's interesting to me because we talk about, you and I just in like in our general day, we talk about a lot of different topics. You love talking about millennials. You love talking about (laughs) trends, right? It seems to me like any seller should consider calling you because you do do a lot more analyzing of the market and of trends and that type of thing than your average realtor does. You know, your average realtor might kind of look on Pinterest or whatever, Mm -hmm. but you're kind of like studying data and that type of thing. I do read, I actually kind of do read a lot of articles that come up, um, this is my new obsession with the Twitter feed. 
because I know you love the Twitter machine. <laughs> I do. I do because you get really quick, easily accessed, you know, information and a lot of it straight from the millennials mouths. Yes. They're the ones doing uh, next STL, for example, is one uh-huh. that I follow on Twitter and um, we STL. We interviewed him a few podcasts ago. Yeah. And STL social and treehouse networking. Just what are they talking about? What events are they excited about? Where are they living? And also next STL, you know, they put out a lot of good data about the developments yeah, that are a, going on. It's amazing. Um, and it's just really easy to connect. And, you know, you can just do a little a little uh, at, at next SDL. I'm sure there's a technical word. I'm not hip enough to know here. Uh-huh. But anyway, <laughs> tweet and um, you'll get feedback. You know, you'll get data just by connecting easily on social media. Speaking of trends, speaking of all this stuff, tell me, what do you think IKEA is going to do to like St. Louis? Are we going to start seeing it in uh, Ikea kitchens all over the place? Or are we going to start seeing... I think we're going to see a resurgence of the meatball. What is that? In St. I Louis. Love, I love meatballs. <laughs> you know, they serve Swedish... food to me. They serve Swedish meatballs when you shop there. Oh, they do. Is that where I'll be able to find you now after <laughs> <Yes>. it opens? <laughs> yes. It's free Swedish meatballs? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm in. I'm You're, in. Are you in? I'm going to wait till the... I'm sure there's going to be lines for like miles to go. When I think I'm too open, old for that. I think... Too old for meatballs? I'm too old for the lawn at the amphitheater and I'm too old for the line at Ikea, but I'll, I'll yeah. give it a few weeks. We've got to wait till it dies down because I need to go there and buy this closet that I want for one of my rehabs, but do you think it's going to be kind you of... Can, the, you could probably order it online, but... Do they have online? I thought they didn't have online. I think they do. But okay. anyway, we digress. Well, we but... digress. Are you going to start to see a lot more IKEA stuff in houses? Yes. That, and do, do you think millennials think will. will like IKEA? I think they will love it. I think they like all of those. I, I, the Midwest is always a few years behind. But I think they like all those tiny house type storage solutions. Oh, the tiny houses. And the clean lines and the great design. Uh, I mean, I think we're, it's still St. Louis. So, you know, we still like our historic details and, you know, our particular architectural details. We still have a love for that. Let's face it. We also have some not so pretty housing stock. It's just there's really nothing redeeming about some of these shotgun houses. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of them, you know, they just don't have necessarily they were you know built by working class people and so they don't have as much as the flourishes and the architectural detail so i mean i do think that you're going to see renovations and those in the mid-century apartment buildings and stuff uh, I, I think it would appeal very much to those did you hear that tenants. you used to be able to buy a house like from the sears catalog yes the, i that? see those in north county all the time this post-war how can we tell if it was a sears house a sears kid house is that what it was? Yeah. Sometimes there's a mark on the house, which I, I've i seen. Big S? <laughs> there's a Sears mark somewhere on the house. Okay. So what it was, you would buy a house and they would just send you it in a bunch of pieces? It was a kid house. Yeah, you'd pour the foundation and they would assemble the house. It's like an Ikea house, basically. <laughs> yeah, and it would come with the kitchen and everything. <laughs> it comes in a box and you have to put it together. Yeah, well, then we have manufactured homes now. Let's see. I, I want to go through a few statistics. You get, you found mm-hmm. this awesome thing on, I guess, was this on Realtor.com? Yeah, National Association of Realtors put this out on Twitter. On Twitter. Okay. <laughs> so being our statistics guru here, you are, and we've been talking about this a lot, so this kind of plays am into our I? conversation. You're making me sound a lot more nerdy spreadsheet than I am. I think it's all in your, It's. I don't mean to say it's all in your head, but I think you keep it organized in your head, right? You're not, I know you have spreadsheets for the properties, and your clients and that type of thing, but you just seem to 
you kind of seem to know these statistics about the millennials. So I hear baby boomers are moving into cities. This says that by 2050, seven-tenths of people will live in cities. So I, mm-hmm. I don't know what that means. How do they know that? How do they know what's going to happen, you know, 20, 30 years from now? I but... guess there's, they're saying if this particular current trend continues. Will cities just be bigger? Like we're sitting in Maplewood right now, which is in the county. Will this just be part of the city? The city, con- well, you know. you know, St. Louis is a, a little different because we drew that hardcore city county line. Right. Um, so when I think of like city, I also sort of include the inner ring. Uh-huh. Um, of suburbs, but uh, walkability trend, I don't really see that going away. So it's not just downtown like we think of it. It would include the city like Lindenwood Park or anything, you know, yes. Tower Grove East or anything like that. Yes. Okay, this said transportation is number two cost of all household spending. That shocks me. Yes. How, how are people spending more in transportation than they are in beer? I wonder <laughs> what the number one, you know? Well, I mean, something's got to give. Either people need to live closer to work or their telecommuting needs to increase. If gas prices aren't aren't going to really stay low and they're going to potentially increase, I could see where transportation costs. This must apply more to people like my friend who lives in O'Fallon, drives literally an hour to work, mm-hmm. pays something like $10 a day to park, works all day, and then drives an hour home. I'm sure his transportation cost is huge. Yeah. It okay. really does add up. And a lot of us have seen the TV show about tiny houses. This talks about that there's there's starting to be more urban environments uh, designed to meet the demands of people wanting to live in the city. They talk about buildings that have green space on them. Mm-hmm. Um, they're talking about micro apartments. And that plays into the whole Ikea thing, too, I guess, because you can like get a bed that transforms into a kitchen that transforms into a kitchen table yes. right type of thing <laughs> have you started seeing any of that lately or are you- no i mean i haven't i haven't seen all any of that but i did read about a development i think i read it on next stl's blog about um a development in the shaw neighborhood by an out-of-town developer okay that is two to four bedroom apartments designed for roommate living. So there's more people who are single but want to have housemates as grownups um, because um, they can share obviously not only expenses but also if, if it makes it, if they have a pet, for example, it makes it easier for them to travel. I wonder what makes so it's not like a shared living space where there's one kitchen and then everyone kind of has their own like bedroom or whatever. Or but it's it's like apartments that are. I'm wondering what makes it designed for roommates. You know? I'm not. I, I'm not exactly sure, but I did. I did remember that they were having mixers to help people meet okay. roommates. Did you go? Uh, no, I have way too many roommates. Right okay. Now. So I don't they, think anybody wants to be in a communal living situation with. Maybe it's like me each person kids. has their own bedroom. Each person maybe has their own bathroom or something, and maybe their own living room, but they share yeah, a the, kitchen. Or I, I think that that would. Yes, I would think that each adult at least wants their own bathroom. But I, I don't know. It didn't really go into the, I, or at least I didn't look at the floor plans. But just the idea that you know, in such a quintessential Midwest city like St. Yeah. Louis, that there's a developer who feels like they can take advantage of the communal living trend here. Yeah. Also, um, presumably the emergence of the startup activity, mm-hmm. and you know, a development like Cortex Development in the Central West End that's centered around the Brain Trust, right? Keeping our brain brain trust here, but also 
attracting out of town trained educated professionals from out of town to move to St. Louis because we do have a lower cost of living etc I mean you're not necessarily going to have people everybody dwelling here who's got a Midwest sentiment and so a lot of those people want to live in kind of more urban environments where they can walk to things walk to the grocery store we're always going to have our suburbanites you know we're not San Francisco we're not New York City we're always going to have the you know people who want to spread out in the suburbs Mm -hmm. but I think that it's just it's not going to be such a given as it was when I was coming up through my 20s. I mean, everybody lived a few years in the city after they got to college. And the vast majority of us plan to move out into the suburbs whenever, you know, we were ready to have kids. You're an, you're a realtor who specializes in a lot of different things. You do a lot of work with investors. So much work that you even have a word for people who do work with non-investors called retail, which (laughs) retail realtors don't call themselves retail realtors, right? But that's okay. You know, we'll take it. But so tell me, just give me like a quick overview. If I want to become an investor Mm -hmm. before I call you or after I call you, what are some things that I need to consider? What, what would you, if I wasn't, if I'm going, Hey, I want to invest in some real estate. Mm -hmm. I think I'll call Alicia. What what kind of like conversation with myself with would you want me to have before I call you? I prefer if someone at least has a notion of what their what his or her personal financial goal is with real estate. Okay, personal financial goals. For example, am I building myself a small portfolio to hold long term to enhance my retirement and or do I want to make an extra x number of dollars a year flipping property? You can't help them achieve success if they don't know what success is to themselves. Right. And I don't, I can have a conversation with them, not unlike the one I'm having with you about Uh what I see in housing trends in St. Louis. Okay. Or the pros and cons of buying property for pure cash flow. Right. Or having a more conservative return, you know, areas like Maplewood, for example. And, you know, kind of a realistic take on that because I mean I've made my own mistakes over the years <laughs> that I've right, been doing this sure. made my own mistakes and had my own successes and, and, and pitfalls so at least I can sort of pass that along like you really need to consider a b and c however I don't think as a realtor it's my job to be their financial advisor okay I think that a financial advisor is a financial advisor I can I can definitely give them some input as far as realistic numbers because I do see people making pro forma sheets you know, projecting the, the performance of a properties right. with what I would consider unrealistic numbers. Okay. There was always going to be something unanticipated with real estate and unanticipated expense. That being said, uh, at the end of the day, they really need to determine what their own particular financial goals are and what they're comfortable with. And Number one step, risk. figure out your goals. Your goals and then what your, what your comfort level is with risk. So like maybe an area that they're comfortable with? Because you can have a goal, but you could go after that goal either more or less aggressively. Uh huh. How okay. much are you, you know, what are you comfortable with leveraging out of your uh, available cash savings? That sort of thing. And if you are going to be using um, mortgages as a tool, then I suggest that you talk to a lender, probably two, probably one at a bank and see what they offer a portfolio, you know, and warehouse loans in house and talk to a qualified mortgage lender, preferably one who has worked with investors. I'd like to ask you the five questions I ask everybody. Oh, you know, this is like that to, uh, actor's studio. This is just like the actor's studio. Okay, this before. isn't going to... Is he going to have to bleep some words out? <laughs> you never know what Joe's I can tell you right now, it's boop. 
<laughs> He's got his finger on the boop button. Yeah. But first of all, I want to go over, and we'll go over it at the end too, but I want to go over what is your like Twitter, is it called the handle? At Stand Up Agent. Okay. Mm-hmm. What's your phone number? 314-766-0847. And what if I'm shy and I want to email you? I love email. Okay. I prefer it. Prefer it? Oh, because you're shy. No, I don't think you're shy. I'm not shy. It's just the you'll hear back from me the fastest by email. Okay, Alicia, A L I C I A at hermanlondon dot com, H E R M A N N L O N D O N. Probably you're seeing that on the website. Sure, <laughs> so, as you're listening. As you're listening. dot com. Okay, perfect. So my five questions, and we get a little personal here. It's a little bit, you know, it's okay. So tell me, Alicia, who lives under your roof? In my fantasies or in my reality? <laughs> Currently, no, this I, is a Trey question. I okay, have question I have um, a, a husband, Mike, and three lovely children, two tweens and a teenager. I don't know what I was thinking. Do you get all the all your millennial news? Are they is that considered millennial? Actually, my oldest son's right at the cutoff. Uh, it's so what are they was, then? X Y Gen or whatever it's called, Gen Y. The last year is supposed to be uh, 2000, and he was born in 2001. So the millennials allegedly were, millennial. were, were born between 80 and 2000 is what I read. So he's kind of at the cutoff. Oh, well, there's a statistic here that says millennials are going to stay living with their parents for another 15 to 20 years. And that's why I'm moving to the... <laughs> uh, I, you know, that's oh. why I got a place where the upstairs is basically its own apartment. Okay. <laughs> okay, and any animals? We have a three-pound chihuahua. Really? Named Chiquita. Three pounds. You can hit fit her in your hand i can okay. i mean i can carry around with one hand okay yes. good so where are you your best question number two well you know this about me i mean i love to make people laugh so right. if i think i'm at my best if i'm with people whether they're um my family well it's a mandatory trait for my family colleagues you possess this trait uh, i love to be around smart people who have a sense of humor Aww. so those are the kinds of uh, clients i prefer to work with so do you have a number three do you have a favorite blog or podcast that you like to listen to or read oh uh, right now actually i've never listened to a podcast until recently okay when i was in nashville this summer on vacation i did a, an open mic because as you know i do comedy on the side yes and i met a young man named jesse case and he was actually on the verge of having his stand-up career explode mm-hmm. um and he had to move back from los angeles to nashville at the age of 29 because he got diagnosed with stage four colon cancer oh my gosh yes and he it was the most incredible uh stand-up performance i've ever seen in person because it was it was obviously from about heart, his experience so smart so funny anyway he's been doing a podcast during his chemotherapy oh, and wow. it's called jesse v cancer Jesse V. Cancer. Okay. Yes. So I, I recommend it. Um, he, unfortunately, he doesn't have a lot of his work on YouTube, but I hope that he gets well enough because he's supposed to be going on tour. So I hope to see him here in okay. St. Louis. So yeah, so that was my venture into podcasts. So now I'm quite, kind of been doing a little explore, exploring with the I think you should have your own podcast. podcast, by the way. You'd be a great candidate for your own podcast. Um, Yeah, actually, that's why I wanted this young man's card because okay. I'm, I'm working on putting my own blog together. Joey, I'll need a referral fee, of course. And it's going to be called uh, Get to the Funny Part. (laughs) Um, So we'll cover any number of topics, including but not limited to real estate. Get to the funny part. Okay. Mm -hmm. Number four, what is your guilty pleasure? You know what? I'm guilty of the, the one thing that makes me forget all my troubles 
and makes me feel like maybe I am. I do have my act together on my worst day is reality television. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Do you have one particular show? Um, I love, love, well, I do love the million dollar listing, uh, agent. listing agents. Mm-hmm. And I love the the Real Housewives of New York City and Beverly Hills in particular because if you can have that much money and that much clout and act the fool like, <laughs> like that, then maybe I do have my act together. But I I would love to have my own, which would be $10,000 listing agent. Okay. Where instead of people coming in and complaining about no stainless steel, they're like, where are the pipes? Or instead of getting excited about the granite countertops, they get excited because the there's an AC there and it has a cage. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so that sounds like a I good think show. it could be a really good show. Yeah, I do too. You know, put it all in perspective for New York and LA. <laughs> I'm into that. You know, we have a local studio here. I think Cool Fire Studio. Maybe they would do it for you. Get it going. Well, hey, maybe it could be a Herman London production. Herman London production. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Number five, before we wrap it up, who is your mentor and how have you thanked them? Who is my mentor? This one, I'm hoping for tears here. You know, we're looking for tears. I, I don't feel like I have any one real estate mentor per se. Life mentor, whatever. Um, although um, I did learn a lot from my former uh, broker, Mark Kaufman okay. at Caldwell Banker Premier. Uh, he's a funny guy. He's very generous. And one of the biggest nuggets of uh, advice he gave me was if you can pay somebody else to do it, pay somebody else to do it. Because okay. I think that really does hold a lot of That's entrepreneurs smart. back. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, but other than that, I would say, I mean, my biggest inspiration has to be uh, my parents. Now, this is where you're going to get the reality show tears. <laughs> they came to St. Louis in one of the hottest summers on record, um, July 1954. They weren't fleeing Havana, but all of the shenanigans was started, so they never went back. Was it hotter here than it is in it was humid? one of the it was record breaking heat. Uh-huh. Uh, yes, I mean they never experienced that kind of humidity. Okay, um, they didn't have any money. They didn't have any air conditioning, and uh, they didn't speak English. And oh my, my dad went into he was a resident first at St. Mary's Hospital for the summer in East St. Louis, and then City Hospital, which is you now is now luxury condos. And my mom was only eighteen, and she didn't know a soul or speak the language. Oh wow! And she had her husband working umpteen hours a day because he was learning a new language and you know learning how to be a doctor. You know, even my worst day, you kind of put that in perspective. So they so, raised five kids and got them all through college. So how have you thanked them? I show up for dinner on Sundays. They do a family dinner. And I take their annoying geriatric phone calls. <laughs> I think that That's is so nice. That is so nice of me. <laughs> Trust me. They've got yeah, we're we're around and we're there <laughs> okay. to answer all questions from the mundane to the interesting on demand. <laughs> okay. I guess that's all I have for you. Anything else you want to say? Um yeah. Cheers to real estate, because I think it's one of the last remaining sort of democratic capitalistic venues to build wealth and Uh financial freedom. Absolutely. And if you haven't looked into it, you really should. And if you've been talking about it for a long time and you haven't done anything, you really should, right? You really should. You really should. No, actually, yeah, I mean, look into it. No harm, no foul. No harm, no foul. Call Alicia. Yes. At Stand Up Agent Twitter. On Twitter. On Twitter. Give yes. me your phone number one more time. 314-766-0847. Perfect. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're an amazing guest. I hope to come back on again. I'm sure everyone will love to hear from you. Please, anyone who has questions, submit your questions so we can ask you these questions on air next time too. 
All right, thanks again, Alicia.